The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. On this episode, we are going to be talking about American Psycho, a movie that your host has been wanting to delve into for 21 years now, since it's 21 years old. So be prepared, everybody, (laughs) because, um, yeah, and I especially have wanted to dive into Christian, what is he called now? Christian fucking Bale. And his amazing performance that is in my top five favorite performances of all time. So I am very excited for this. Um, I will say a couple of trigger warnings on the onset since this is a movie about a guy who brutally murders women. Uh, It also has to do with a lot of assault, um, questions of consent, all that kind of jazz. So just trigger warning if that triggers you at all. Don't listen to this episode. Okay, so before I have my panel introduce themselves, just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Of course, we are taking listener support for as little as 99 cents a month to $9.99 a month. And like I announced on our BDSM episode, but in case you didn't listen to that one, uh, we are offering rewards. So if you give 99 cents a month for at least four months, you'll get a podcast sticker and then a weekly shout out. Those shout outs will start next week. Then for $4.99 a month, you get everything for 99 cents a month. Plus you will also get the opportunity to be on a special bonus episode, more details to come on that. And once again, you have to make that for at least four months. And then at the 999 tier, you get all that. Plus after four months, you get either a t-shirt, Phantom Thing Pod t-shirt or a coffee mug. So lots of great rewards. So if you want to donate to us and then also Help One Black Lives Matter organization and One Stop Asian Hate organization. Click the link in the show notes or head on over to our anchor page and click listener support there. And then also, if you just want to go to our Redbubble store and pick up some merch, do that as well. Once again, 50% of that also goes to One Black Lives Matter organization and One Stop Asian Hate organization. Okay, so I'm going to have my amazing panel introduce themselves and tell me one thing they're into right now in pop culture. Start with you, Carla. I am into... 
just a lot of of um, salsa music, well, salsa and cumbia. So I'm, I'm just anything that can be danced to in um, like your tío's backyard when he has like, you know, just a, a cookout and, you know, everybody's bringing in the the pulled pork and everything. Yeah, that's what's going on right now in my Spotify playlist. Much awesome. to the displeasure of my son. <laughs> He's like, no, no more of that. <laughs> Pretty much. And I'm like, yeah, get your own Spotify account then. <laughs> that's awesome. Great. And then Sarah. Um, hi, I'm Sarah. Um, right now I am into discovered this show on uh, Netflix because of course Netflix called the Irregulars. I believe that's the name of it. It's sort of supernatural meets Sherlock Holmes. Um, and the reason I say Sherlock Holmes is because Watson is a major character in the show. Um, sort of a little bit of a twist on the Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, with a lot of supernatural aspects thrown in. Uh, surprisingly, my husband actually discovered this one, and he never watches this stuff with me. Uh, but, of course, he is out of town, so now I can't watch it until he gets back next weekend. So I'm only three episodes in, but it's been a, a, a pretty fun show so far. Um, very diverse cast, which I absolutely love. So oh. check it out. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that one. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't heard of that either. And we just kind of stumbled upon it one night. We were looking for something new to watch. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that looks like my kind of thing. He's like, yeah, I think we can watch that. And, yeah, then we just got sucked in. And then he left for the keys. And now I'm like, ugh. So now I have to get <laughs> back to watch it. <laughs> and, well, that's a bummer. But <laughs> And then Sasha. Um, I watched Godzilla vs. Kong which I just jacked from Aaron so sorry <laughs> it's okay it's funny because <laughs> I have another backup I have a backup okay yeah well because the other one was Tina but I already mentioned that in the BDSM episode so Godzilla vs. Kong is the other thing that I watched other than stuff for podcast prep um <laughs> Which, it was fun. But then I had this moment where I was like, is King Kong really the same size as Godzilla? And I got really confused at the height of the monsters, which is so not the point. And I think my husband was a little annoyed because he's like, they're, what did he say? He's like, they're 40 feet. No, 40 stories. I was like, they're both of them? Like, I just didn't realize. I, I'm done. That's funny. Yeah, I I liked it. I I root for. I mean, it was very hard because I was like, I'm not going to spoil anything because I was like, I don't want Kong or Godzilla to die. <laughs> I was like, I don't care about the humans at all in these kind of movies. I'm like, whatever. Like, I root for Jaws. I rooted for Anaconda and Anaconda, even and especially since they didn't know anything about snakes in that movie because they thought they could stop the snake by blinding it. Snakes don't see very well. They use their tongue, dummies. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I love snakes. So. <laughs> but I always root for the animals because I like animals more than people. So in this one, I'm rooting for, you know, Kong and Godzilla. I'm like, who cares about how many humans have to die? I don't care. The humans are boring. Whatever. Um, so, but it was fun. I really, 
wish I was at the point where I felt comfortable to go to a theater because I think it would have been a lot more fun to see on a big screen, but I did enjoy it. But what I'll mention is I also snuck in, there is an updated version of Creep Show. The television, there's a television version, television show version of it on Shudder. And <laughs> the new season started and it's two great episodes. And in one of the episodes, Ted Raimi, who's Sam Raimi's brother, plays himself on a version of, they're doing a version of like uh, public access television and they've got like a version of Bob Ross and then they've got a version of Antiques Roadshow. And he comes on there with uh, the Necromonicon, you know, the Book of the Dead. And it is really hilarious if you are an Evil Dead fan. I recommend watching it because it's really funny. Yeah, so Carla, definitely check it out. Yeah, it's it's great fun. <laughs> Before we get into American Psycho, we have a very special guest joining us for just a little bit here. So I'm very, very excited and thrilled to have him joining us, Mr. Christian fucking Bale. <laughs> hello, thank you for joining us. Yes, hello, Erin. Thank you so much for having me on. It is a pleasure. It is an honor. I have prepared for many, many weeks for this appearance by listening back to all of your interview episodes. And I am just thrilled to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. I am but a simple Welsh man. I am not somebody that you should be so very like, enthusiastic about. I am but a simple worker trying to make characters come to life on the screen well thank you so much for stopping by is there anything so you want to I say about want... your amazing performance in american psycho yes but before i get to that i just want to thank you for correctly pronouncing my middle name which nobody ever gets correct i have been insulted my life entire time i have been on earth sharing this earth with people and not one not one not even my own parents managed to get my middle name correct but i thank you erin for putting in the work as for my performance in american psycho the delightful film that we filmed 22 years ago i only want to say that I mean Mr. Tom Cruise, no disrespect when I say that I based the entire dead-eyed persona almost entirely on him. Although, to be frank, uh, I maybe do mean some disrespect. Uh, I shan't lie. Okay, well, thank you so much. Christian fucking Bale. And I'm really happy that I was able to pronounce your middle name correctly. And I hope you will come back for an interview. And then, of course, to be on our Superstore panel, because I know you're a big fan of that show. Why, yes, I am, Erin. Yes, I am. I will gladly return to discuss it. Uh, I have already signed myself up. Uh, don't bother how I found out your sign-up sheet. It is quite okay. I have my ways. I will be glad to return for that episode and many, many others. Uh, don't bother locking your doors. I have a key. I will let myself in. Ta-ta, Erin. And thank you once again. Ta-ta, Christian fucking Bale. Thank you so much. 
I really hope Christian fucking Bale listens to this episode somehow. Because, yeah, that was incredible. Well, okay. he's got to be like Beetlejuice, right? If we say Christian fucking Bale enough times in it, and it's going to make it back to him. Yeah, and he's going to have to listen to it. Because somebody's going to be like, did you listen to these he'll, women? He'll just magically show up. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, continuously say Christian fucking Bale nonstop for two days. Thank you so much, Um Christian fucking Bale, a.k.a. Carla's amazing Welsh accent. Thank you so much. Okay, so now let's get into actually talking about the movie. And I do want to start out talking about um, Christian Bale's performance. Because, like I said at the beginning, this is one of my absolute all-time favorite performances. Um, And as everybody knows, he, you know, did a three-hour workout every day to prep to get the body that he has in here, the physique. Um, he of course also did the teeth. He, you know, he did stuff to his teeth. He is an actor that is known to go beyond to get prepared for a role. So I want to talk about that. What are your thoughts, overall thoughts about his performance, Carla? I think, you know, this being the year of the eyes, this is like a perfect example of how to convey a lot in the opposite way where you're using the eyes to uh, to show how vacant the character is on the inside. Whereas all of these actors that we've talked about this whole year have used their their eyes to to show minute changes in the character's demeanor and thought and emotional process. Christian Bale um, just makes so much work with the deadest eyes in the world. Like if, if there's a, like an Oscar for dead eyes, I don't know how he didn't win it for that year. Cause you know, that hands down is like exactly what you want in this kind of character where he's communicating through his suit and through his business cards and all of these artificial things. But and I think that that, it, that it's even more um, apparent as the movie goes on, his face gets deader and deader. Like at the very beginning, he's he's um, not Christian Bale, but well, but uh, Patrick Bateman is putting in the effort to seem normal and to try to fit in. And as the film goes on, that kind of starts getting lost. And that's just brilliant work on Christian Bale's part that his uh, just everything in his face becomes deader and deader the more he dies inside but it's just amazing work that he did and you know like as far as his physique like I just constantly worry about those kinds of things because you know you you go to the doctor and they're like oh you know we want you to lose weight but like you know lose it at a slow pace and you know and this guy just like nope out it goes yeah, like I said, I'm really worried about his health. Honestly, I really think he's probably done a lot of damage to his heart. I can't, I mean, yeah, yeah. And Sarah, your overall thoughts on his performance? Um, I, I just, oh, exceptional. Um, I mean, you can see how he, and, and I mean, he taught, his character talks about it about how he's just trying to fit in and going through going through the motions and and you know trying to be part of society and 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 part of his 
uh, Wall Street group and, and friends, and he just unravels <laughs> towards the end. Um, I, you know, I, I think he is a tremendous actor. And like you said, what he has put his body through, like you look at what the fighter when he won the Oscar and, and how much weight he lost. And then not so much, you know, but after that, then the weight he gained for American Hustle. And I just, yeah, I, I'm worried about him as well. <laughs> um, I, I am also worried about him, considering he's also the same age as me, um, which I discovered today. I was like, oh, I wonder how old he is. Oh, he was born the same year as me. How about that? But anyway, um, definitely one of my uh, uh, favorite performances. I know I don't have as much... Uh, uh, insight as everyone else i'm just not that analytical i apologize no you had a lot uh, of stuff you to say that was good but i mean just uh, just tremendous the way he he plays the character and almost personifies that that decade and the vanity and the greed and it was just amazing absolutely amazing um you know, despite the fact that he's, like, a murderer. Um, you you kind of like him, which is odd. But I, I, I'm weird that way. <laughs> and Sasha? Um, I ditto to everything that they've said so far, but, I mean, he nailed it. Like, he is truly believable as, you know, a narcissistic, antisocial personality, you know, psychopath. Like, he nailed it. And that smile that he does all the time, that grin, where it's like, I, I want to be warm and inviting, and so I'm going to smile at you, because smiling is how we invite people in. But my smile says, I've got teeth, and I will eat you. You know, so he's got that, and he's just... He's Christian fucking Bale. I mean, he's perfection. He is so good in that role. And it's, I mean, American Psycho is in my top 10 movies. I love this film. I love everything about it. It, I, I just, I love it. I love him. Um, I can't picture Leonardo DiCaprio in that role. Like, that is very disturbing to me. I just, he wouldn't have, no, no. It had to be Christian fucking Bale. He nailed it. Nailed it. That's all I can say about his performance is just dead on perfection. And that Mm -hmm. smile. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's um, like I said, this is one of my top five favorite performances of all time. I remember watching this in the theater and when it was over, I went, I don't know if I can ever watch him in another movie again because he was so good. He scared me. I mean, he was so good that it was scary. It was terrifying because he captured this character so well. He captured um, the terrifying parts and the scary parts and the murderous parts, but he also captured something in this character where this character is so flippin' insecure. That's the other thing. He's so insecure. And you know, all of the voiceovers and the way he would do that and all the talk, we'll get into the music and talking about the different songs And he was just so good. He was just completely this character. Every move, the way he walked, 
um, you know, just the scene when he's walking into the office, the first time we see him walking into his office and walking on sunshine is playing in his headphones. And like I said, there are two people that I will think of every time I hear that song. Number one is Patrick Bateman. And then the other one um, would be Charlie from Supernatural. So two very different characters, but the way he's walking and his face, he's got no expression. He's just stone cold serious. And this walking on sunshine song is playing and it's just such a perfect dichotomy there. And just the way he is reacting to that with no reaction, really. Um, the way he is basically, like he said, he's wearing a mask of sanity and it's slowly slipping. And you see that throughout the movie as it goes on and goes on and goes on. And then to the ending, you know, when he has all that fantastical stuff, really, that happens with the shootout with the cops and all that kind of stuff and the confession to his lawyer and, um, and the fact that every time he has some kind of thing where he feels like he's not in control or he's not the best, he starts sweating, like profusely sweating and he gets really sweaty and his hair is sweaty and, and it's just really interesting to watch. And it's interesting to watch the way he talks, the way his mouth moves, his eyes, like Carla said, they are, I mean, they're completely dead, completely dead. There's no humanity there. Even when he's saying stuff, like there's certain lines he'll say, like the line that kind of cracks me up is when he's talking to the detective the first time he meets him and he's like, yeah, we saw this play. Um, I think it was like, oh, oh, Africa, my beautiful, or something like that. It was a laugh riot. And the way he says it, it's just like, it's just the way he says things are, is like, they're so ridiculous. And yet he says them so fake earnest with such a fake sincerity to him. And people just don't even notice half the stuff he's saying. And when he even talks, when he has that whole thing where he's talking about how, we need to do more for it. We need to help people get out of poverty and we need to help people here and this and that. And it's, and he doesn't believe any of this crap. He's just saying what he thinks he has to say to fit in. Um, but it is such a portrait of the fragility of the white male ego. And that's what he's playing. And he captures it so well. And the fact that he based so much of this off of Tom Cruise is so perfect because he's got that almost like in a trance state. And the fact that even all the other characters that may not be killing people are kind of exactly like him, too. So he's it's just it's it's just a fascinating performance. I love watching it. Uh, I, of course, was able to watch him since then. He's one of my favorite actors. I think he's brilliant in almost everything he does. I think his performance in The Machinist is so close to being tied to this one for me um, because he's one of those actors that he takes the role so seriously that his whole body changes and not just when he loses weight or gains weight or anything like that. It's just the way he moves, the way he holds himself, the way he moves his mouth, his eyes, his hair, his hands, his everything. It's just really, really incredible to me. And that's why I would love to, honestly, I would love to interview him because he's so fascinating. And just the way he must approach these characters and the research he must have done. I mean, I don't know what kind of research he would have done for this, except for maybe researching serial killers um, and Wall Street guys and Tom Cruise. <laughs> so. But yeah, I just think it's perfect. I think it's really sad that this genre is looked down upon so much because I think he should have won an Academy Award for this. Um, I think it's one of the all-time greatest performances. 
and I will fight anyone who says that this is not a good performance. And I actually do think Leonardo DiCaprio is a really good actor, but I don't think he could have done this. I don't think he could have done this. And Oliver Stone would have ruined this. So I think it's perfect that Christian Bale did this and that it was directed by Mary Heron. And I just think it's just, it's a perfect combination. And I think he's just, he's just incredible. Um, okay. So let's talk about, I mean, this film is set in the eighties, of course, and the eighties is a big part of this. So I want to get your takes on what you think this film is saying about the eighties and the eighties culture of greed, Carla. You know, it's very interesting that this movie is set in the eighties and captures the spirit of the eighties so very well to the point where you could almost imagine it having been made in the eighties. And yet there's so much about it, about what it's really satirizing that's still going on to this day. And I read um, a a review, like, a you know, looking back on the 20, 20 years later from The Guardian, which I'll have to look for the actual thing so I can, you know, give credit to the person who wrote it, saying that, you know, this, this kind of culture in the 80s that, that this movie is talking about is who those people were who were running the financial side of the of the country. And these are the people who are now looked at as electable. So we've gone, you know, from taking these people as the paramount of what a um a an upcoming young man in the eighties who wants to be successful is kind of and just made it that much worse. But the the thing that was really that captures the 80s for me so well in this performance and in this character is that he's kind of like an AI approximation of a human. He is 1980s Wall Street made flesh. He is obsessed only with acquiring wealth, not even for its own sake, but for the sake of showing up those he considers lesser beings. He wants to fit in, so he has the fancy job and the fancy lifestyle, but truly he doesn't really even care about that. He just still wants to, it's all about climbing. It's all about um, being better than the person that you perceive to be below you. And, it, it, you know, part of the, the whole 80s thing is, you know, uh, talking about morality and about family values and, you know, returning to traditional American values. And it's a lot of blah, blah, blah being embraced by these people who don't really care. Like they say the words, but there's no meaning behind them. And that's exactly what he does. This is why not just the film, but also just the character himself is the perfect personification of that decade, of that particular sector of that decade. Um, and I just, you know, as the movie goes on in the line between fantasy and reality blurs more, for Patrick Bateman, and he starts to uh, just throw in more and more things that sound so practiced and so rehearsed. Uh, it just really feels like he's trying to... Um, it, it's, it's that very plastic quality that there was in the 80s. And particularly in, in these people, you know, the, the yuppie... Harvard and Yale grads who sit in an office and do nothing all day and just they're all vice presidents of nothing. They're not really getting anything done, but they're getting paid handsomely to not do it. No, I mean, it uh, as a 
child growing up in the 80s. I was born in 74. Um, I think the movie captures that decade perfectly. The 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 greed, like Gordon Gecko said, greed is good. Um, the greed, the excess with just the drugs and i mean that that was one of the first scenes in the movie uh was it bryce that came in and said you know this there there's no good bathroom here for doing coke mm-hmm. this is yeah, so 80s. that is so 80s um the vanity i mean and you see that with with patrick um and how he is just doing everything he can to appear normal to fit in because that's that's what it was. Um, it's funny that Carlos says that you're vice president of nothing. And yeah, and I always thought that watching the movie that I'm like, are these people actually doing any work? Or, or even when they're in the boardroom and the, the business card scene, which I know we'll probably dive into <laughs> later on, which is one of the best scenes, that, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. You know, they're all vice presidents. Well, what are they vice president of? I mean, it, it just says vice president. Um, you know, it, I mean, for me, it, it, it just does capture that decade perfectly. And I don't know if this is a good time to, to bring it up, but I know, uh, Carla mentioned like he was just sort of an AI of the eighties that came to life. Um, one of the, uh, things that uh, symbolism that just got to me was in the very beginning when he's going through his whole beauty routine um and he does the mask and he says he has to leave it on for you know he leaves it on for 10 minutes and as he's talking about how i'm I'm gonna paraphrase how he is sort of a, a hollow of a person that's not really what he says but um he, he's talking about how He's fitting in and or trying to fit in. He's just doesn't feel it. And, um, you know, he's pretending again, paraphrasing. And as he's talking, he's just peeling the mask off, um, sort of, you know, in a way kind of revealing his true self. Uh, I just thought that was that symbolism was fantastic. <laughs> um, one of my, you know, I, I, I've actually watched it like twice in the past couple of days. So I've been trying to pick, you know, pick these things out to the point where my kids are like, really, we're watching this again? Yes. Yes, we are. So sorry. If you want to watch something else, go away. Um, but I mean, just, just for that decade, fantastic. I mean, in, in overall fantastic job. Um, so I will hand it over to Sasha now, who's probably has more insight than I do. That was great. Sarah, Sasha. No, Sarah, I'm so glad that you mentioned um, that man has the most intensive beauty routine I've ever seen. I am a little jealous that I am dropping the ball. You know, I'm like, I wash my face and then I put on like daily moisturizer and that's it. Like, Yeah, I, I feel so inadequate after a while. I'm failing in the <laughs> like, you know, beauty regimen. I put on a mask. I'm like, no, maybe I should do that. <laughs> Exactly. Like, I actually want the Patrick Bateman skincare routine to take care of these bags under my eyes in the dark circles. Like, how do I fix that, sir? 
Don't kill me. Just fix my face. (laughs) So, but that's part of that whole 80s, the excess, like he's striving for perfection. What is it? He can do a thousand sit-ups. He's up to a thousand sit-ups or whatever for his routine. Like he, he's very structured in his routine. Everything is set. Everything is perfect. And it's all to attain that like ultimate goal for him um which i think is very that culture that he was in you know um the greed the perfection i want to talk about the bar scenes and specifically the one where they're in the club and they're like these half wall thing i originally thought they were in a bathroom but it's not a bathroom because it's like these little half walls they're basically drug stalls Mm-hmm. And they're talking, and at one point they the guy jumps over and screams like, "I'm trying to do fucking drugs over here. What's wrong with you? Like, really? Yeah. Like, it's very the cocaine. There's no good bathrooms for the cocaine, whatever. Um, so that is very very 80s. However, I do want to throw out that um in the mid 90s, well late mid to late 90s, I ended up in a bar. I walked into this bar. It was in Union Station here in Denver. I walked in and immediately went, nope, and turned around and walked back out because it was like I walked into American Psycho. I, (laughs) it was bad. I like literally walked in. So maybe it was late, late 90s, but I walked in and went, oh no. All like that blue shirt with the white cuffs and the white collars that were popular at the time, just business suits, but all, a sea of white guys that all look the same. Like I would not have been able to pick a single one of them out of a lineup. And I just remember walking in and going, I'm in the wrong bar. I gotta go. Um, It was bad. It was real bad. So it just had that vibe, you know, it's just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, I, I think a lot of times people like to romanticize the eighties and they like to say that, like, especially they romanticize Reagan. Reagan did a lot of harm to this country. Reagan was not a good president. Reagan was a horrible president and not a good human being. Uh, He, you know, I think especially now after we've had Trump, people really like to romanticize Reagan and Reagan was a racist. Reagan was not a good person. Reagan did a lot of harm to people. He um, created, you know, a lot of uh, our our um, prison industrial complex. He helped a lot with that. He was, uh, you know, the whole just say no campaign, which you hear said in here a couple of times, um, is it, did a lot of harm to this country. Um, I grew up without having money like a lot of people did, but a lot of people had that money. So it was very much, you know, you had the really rich and the really poor. Um, A lot of stuff that was done with, with race relations in this country, all that kind of stuff. So I think people like to romanticize that era, that um, decade and like to look back on it and think it was better than what we have now. Um, And I don't, think people realize how many people were struggling then and I think this movie actually comments a lot on that when you see people like the way he treats the homeless man in this movie uh, was very much representative of the way that people in the government treated people who were in poverty especially 
um, any, especially um, a black man, having that be a black man too, I think says a lot. Um, I think also mentioning Trump a lot in this movie, Trump is mentioned a few times, name dropped. Um, in the book, if anyone's read the book, it's name dropped even more in the book. And of course, uh, before this, I mean, they didn't know when this movie came out, but of course, you know, that man became president. And I think looking back on it and watching it now and seeing Trump be so prevalent in this movie, I think really says a lot because I think Trump is very much like all these men. Trump is like Patrick Bateman. Trump is like all these men that um, Patrick Bateman hang, hung out with. Uh, so I think it says a lot about that. Um, and then also the big thing here, and we'll get into the music here in a second, is having the music be like a lot of the pop songs in the 80s was so interesting to watch because it's a lot of the music in the 80s is criticized as being very vapid and not having a lot of depth and a lot of meaning to it. And I think that's true of some of it, but I think that's not true of others. I th And so I think it's interesting to see vapid music that is loved by a vapid character that really has no soul. I mean, he really has no soul, honestly. I think this is a person who... Uh, like Carla said, the perfect description was saying an AI. So he's artificial. Like he says over and over again, he's like, he's like, you know, you can, you can touch me. You can shake my hand and think that you are touching flesh and that you're feeling that you can think that you're talking to a human being, but I simply don't exist. I'm simply not real. And all he feels at the end, like he said, all he feels is anger and greed and he doesn't care about anybody he has no no compassion for a single living thing in the planet in the world anywhere not even necessarily for himself um he's just a complete manifestation of 80s greed and 80s excess and white male privilege and white privilege in general and the privilege of being rich and the privilege of classism because i mean the first time you see him go in his office what does he do after gene leaves he sits there, puts his feet up on the table, turns on the TV and watches Jeopardy. So it's not like he's doing anything and he doesn't have anything he's really working on. The time he's pretending to be on the phone, he's saying like the stupidest stuff that would not be urgent. Like this is what you should wear. And no, you don't tip this person. And yes, you make sure to tip this person and that kind of stuff. But nobody seems to care and nobody mentions it because he can get away with anything because this is the ideal. This is what you're supposed to look up to. And one thing that I, one scene that I think is so interesting is the scene when he first has um, the prostitute um, Christy, where he says, your name's going to be, you know, we don't ever learn her real name. And then he um, or has Sabrina there too. So he has the two, uh, the prostitute and the call girl there and they're sitting there on the couch and he's like, don't you want to know what I do for a living? And they're both kind of like, I could care less. And it's this weird thing of like, you know, he's like, oh, wait a minute. So you're not in this fake little land that I live in. These are real people. Whereas he's living in this world where nobody cares about anything but image and excess. Like his voiceovers of when he goes to a restaurant, he's like, I'm filled with panic and dread. And I'm about to cry on the verge of tears because we might not get the best table in the restaurant. And then we do in this wave of calm overflows me and I'm, you know, I'm at peace. And what, why would that bring you any kind of calm and peace? And that's what I think is so brilliant about this movie. Uh, we're not going to talk about the book in here much because I think the book, um, I think the book 
goes to another degree with this, but, uh, but I think what's so brilliant about the movie is it's basically, it is a satire in a lot of ways. And it is saying, you know, this is how vapid that culture is. This is how vapid capitalism is. This is how vapid that we are as a country that the that America is because this is the American dream what Patrick Bateman has minus the killing all that stuff that's the American dream that's what you're supposed to strive for you're supposed to strive for that perfect body and you know yes it's very nice when the camera is shows his ass I mean he's got an amazing body in this movie (laughs) I mean there's no denying that he's incredibly sexy but there's nothing else there. So then the sexiness just vanishes away. And it's interesting that so many characters, you see there's a couple of people that say he's so sweet and nice and caring. And he's like the epitome of ice cold, toxic masculinity. And that's what's so interesting is everybody buys into that, buys into that perfect persona, that Tom Cruise uh persona of the perfect grin and the perfect smile and that perfect body and the perfect hair that's so greasy your hand would get stuck in it if it ran through it and that perfect regime that he has and the beauty regime which yes I would love to know that too but yeah it's just it's just it's uh, it's incredible and I think if you I think you could set it in today as well and not have to change much and it would be kind of the same the same story Sasha I just want to go back to the shower butt scene (laughs) like just real quick here can we like let's be real and I'm not gonna kick him out of my bed for eating crackers and I he would be fun to test drive for a night you know like obviously he's not good and he's toxic and he's all that is wrong but sometimes you gotta go a little bad and I'm not, I mean, it's Christian fucking Bale. (laughs) Exactly. You could just be like, I'll just be with you as Christian Bale, Christian fucking Bale, and not Patrick Bale. Yeah, his ass, I mean, I have to say, (laughs) I was, I forgot how amazing his ass is in the shower scene, and when he's doing any of the workouts and anything like that, I'm like, holy crap. It's just, his whole physique is incredible, and the tanning bed scene I literally gasped when, because I had forgotten about the shower scene and then it panned and I was like, oh God. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I know. It was very, a very nice way to have the um, male gaze turned on a man and have it be the female gaze. It was very, very nice, which wouldn't have been done if this had been done by Oliver Stone in the same way, because it was a very sexy meant to turn you on thing and be attracted to him and then question why are you attracted to him kind of thing um sarah you want to say something yeah that was questioning my morals um (laughs) yeah i'm like oh yoga in the tiny whiteies yeah no no and i think i think it was it i'm sure that was all done on purpose like you said oh yeah we had had oliver stone we wouldn't have had that and i think it was to make you question your morals <laughs> a bit it's like oh but he's just so damn attractive mm-hmm. but he's a psychopath <laughs> you know it, it, it's yeah it's one of those things and oh my god the shower scene um, um i i'm gonna need to take a cold shower <laughs> now after 
that. Um, yeah. And, and the tanning bed, I'm like, oh, I forgot about that scene. Yeah, that 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 was up there with um, Ewan McGregor in Train Spotting um, after he goes home with um, I can't think of her name, and he's out in the hall I'm like, oh, I forgot about that scene too. Okay, yeah. So I'm gonna go stop drooling now. <laughs> but it is true. I was like, that's why it's important to have women you know, being behind the scenes of stuff like this, because you get to have that slow pan up of his body in the tanning bed scene. And I honestly, when I was watching it, I'm like, can we go a little bit slower? Can we go back down again and back up again? I'd like to see that again. Can we have another shower scene Just and pause, we can do another close up on second. his ass? I mean, his ass is amazing. <laughs> I think that's one of the best asses I have ever seen on screen. And that's what I'm like, okay, thank you, Christian Bale, for being so insistent on doing three hours a day of working your body because it's much appreciated by all of us to be able to gaze at your body the way that men get to gaze at women and to be able to gaze at your magnificent physique in this movie. Thank you. Thank you again, Christian Bale. Yeah. And okay, so let's move on. Um Actually, let's move on to the music and the music monologues. So I want to talk about that because, of course, that plays a big part in this where you will see him do some monologues, especially before he starts killing people. And so I want to go over the three big ones. Um, So first, I want to talk about Hip to be Square, which is the one he does before he kills Paul Allen, uh, played by the annoying Jared Leto. Uh, So, (laughs) Carla, what are your thoughts on Hip to be Square? Um, I'm not going to have a ton to say on these because it's it's not really my milieu. But uh, my my one takeaway take with this is is that with all of them really is that it's part of his trying to fit in as a human. You know, it's like like a robot or an or an alien from outer space. Like, what do humans talk about? They talk about music, sports, business, and so he just you know. It's like he memorized reviews from Rolling Stone on these on these uh, musical acts and just regurgitated them. And it's like, okay, well, so that's my my whole takeaway on it. Um, back to you, Aaron. <laughs> I like that though. And Sarah, you know, I never thought about it that way, but yeah, the, they are probably <laughs> articles that he read on Rolling Stone and just regurgitated. Um, I mean, the the Huey Lewis have to be square scene is just my favorite of the movie because you have this, you know, super upbeat song and he's talking about how it's, you know, against 80s conformity and, you know, all this sort of stuff, which is exactly what he is doing. Um, And it's got the real, you know, upbeat, positive rhythm to it and everything else and just the the whole scene um but the one that the the part that struck me about that is he when he goes into the bathroom to get the raincoat is that a raincoat yes it is see the pill bottle there but you never really see what he's taking um so i'm curious and this is just my thought process here i'm curious what medication he's taking for because i I have theories that we'll probably discuss later on, but I don't want to discuss it now. Um, 
and just the way a lot of the music that they use, like you were saying, uh, you know, with Walking on Sunshine, him walking in and he's just deadpan with this really, you know, upbeat, fun music, even uh, talking when he's in the limo and talking about like, he just wants to listen to the new Robert Palmer uh, tape and uh, his fiance is going on and on and on about wedding plans and uh, and I know we'll get into other stuff later, so I'm not even going to uh, talk about that now. Uh, but it's just it's interesting the way they picked uh, the the certain songs that they picked during the scenes. Um, how you have this really dark scene where he's I mean he's basically set up the apartment he's going to kill Paul. Um, and that was the plan from the beginning. But he's playing this really upbeat fun kind of song and then does the little shimmy <laughs> in, in the goes, which just I laugh hysterically every time I see it and I'm like this is just such a horrible thing that is about to happen but it's hilarious um you know and again it's it questions my really twisted sense of humor <laughs> but I love it so much and you know, if anyone hasn't seen the parody with Huey Lewis and Weird Al Yankovic, Google it because it, oh my God, I was crying. It It's just perfection. And the way Huey Lewis just captures Patrick Bateman and his mannerisms and body language and everything, it's just pure comedy perfection in my opinion mm -hmm. i i agree yeah yeah and i we posted it a while back on our twitter page and I, i'll post it again before we post this episode but yeah i think that parody is spot on especially if you watch him back to back because he huey lewis does it so well and i liked the fact that huey lewis did that because i like when people are able to sort of poke fun at themselves because it was kind of poking fun at himself because the movie is poking fun at him. So I think that, yeah, I really like that. And then Sasha. My favorite is also the hip to be square, mostly because of the little shimmy in the raincoat. It's my, I just, I love it because he's so upbeat and just like, yes, yes it is. You know, and he does this whole thing. So I love um, the hip to be square speech that he gives the rest of them i mean all of them are great all of his little monologues are fantastic but the hip to be square one has got to be hands down like my favorite it's just it's so funny to see him upbeat and almost happy when he's so flat all the time and he just has that moment where it's like I'm kind of perky and I don't really know what to do with it. So I love that. Um, just that switch in him. I am a music person. So of course I love all the music in this movie. I have been listening to hip to be square for this off and on all week because of this movie. Um, Huey Lewis in the news was the very first concert I ever saw and I saw them at Red Rocks when I was a little kid I was very lucky because if you don't know Red Rocks is the best concert venue out there I'm sorry hands down best concert venue so I was very lucky this was my very first and then Billy Joel was my second uh, so I was very very fortunate as a young kid that I got to see um, that 
Um, so Huey Lewis and the News will always have a special place in my heart because of that. And I just think what's so brilliant about that one, I think they're all great, but what's so brilliant about that one is there's a little moment when he goes in the bathroom and he's putting on his raincoat, takes his medication, and he looks at himself in the mirror. And it's this moment of, like, it's the first moment where you kind of see him almost um, afraid of himself and kind of worried about what he's about to do because he gets this very serious almost scared, almost childlike look in his eyes right before he takes the pills or right after he takes the pills. So it's interesting because he kind of breaks out of that and then he goes back there and does that. And I just love the way the whole scene is done and how, you know, when Paul Allen is like, do you have a little chow or something? She's like, no, no, I don't. And just he's just that upbeat and cheeriness and the way he's describing the song, the way he's describing Huey Lewis in the news. And even when he stands there with the CD, like he's in an advertisement. I mean, it's just amazing. It's incredible. And of course, the little shimmy that he does. It's one of the best gifs out there now. And um, I just I just think it's great. Everything about it is perfection. And I laugh at it. And um, I think it's okay to laugh at that scene. I think you're allowed to. And Paul Allen is not a nice guy. I'm not saying he deserved to be chopped up with an axe, but he's not, he's not a great guy. Um, but I think it's interesting also that the axe is pristine. It's pristinely beautiful. I mean, it's just like, it's shining and it's this, it's almost a thing of beauty. And then when he sits there and he's got the blood on his face and he sits there and he's like, he's almost rage in rage. And he's like angry and he sits there and he's, you know, pushing his hair back and, um, and he's got, and he lights the cigar. And I just think it's so amazing and so wonderfully done. And again, another brilliant nod to Christian Bale's performance. Cause he just does that so well, where it's like, he's been upbeat and cheery and then he knows what he just did. And then he just sits there stewing in it. And as far as the other ones, um, I will say are in our poll, um, the, Two Phil Collins ones, especially Susu Studio, won. Those were the more popular ones, which I was kind of surprised. I thought Huey Lewis in the News would win. Um, and those ones are interesting because, you know, he's talking to, um, you know, Sabrina and Christy and talking to them about two different songs. And then with Susu Studio, you've got the whole sex scene, the three-way sex scene and him filming it. And the whole time he's having sex, he's watching himself in the mirror and flexing his biceps and looking at how beautiful he is and how amazing he is. And he's like, I am fucking them so well right now. I mean, that's really what you know he's thinking in his head is I'm incredible. I've got this amazing prowess. I'm just satisfying these women so well. Um, and I just think that's really well done with the Whitney Houston one. What I think is so interesting about that one is watching that the women, um, especially the girl who went to Sarah Lawrence and who actually trivia, she's one of the writers of the screenplay. Um, I think it's so funny watching her because because <laughs> she's like, you're you actually like Whitney Houston? I mean, you know, it's like this very playing into that thing where that's not a thing that a man should like is Whitney Houston. That's Gwyneth Turner, just to let you know. Um, and I just think that's just an interesting scene because, and he doesn't even acknowledge that. Like he doesn't even acknowledge that basically she has called into question his manhood, which is what that scene was kind of about. Um, which is sad that you would question someone's manhood for liking Whitney Houston. 
but I just think that's that's interesting as well. Um, so yeah, I just think the music is so perfect in this, and I think the choice of songs are perfect. Um, I think when he's listening to Lady in Red, and he's in the office, and he's just... <laughs> The way these songs are so juxtaposed to his violence and how psychotic he is, it's just it's just perfect. I think if they had chosen really dark songs, like Oliver Stone probably would have done, it would have taken away something. Because he's living in this world where he's trying to pretend to be normal. And to pretend to be normal would be to like these songs and not to like dark music. So it fit. Sarah, you wanted to add something there? Yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, uh, interesting with uh, to me uh, with the uh, studio, um, you know, during during the threesome scene where he's you know flexing and and whatnot. It, it just it came across to me that he is more impressed and turned on by himself and his perfection and how he looks than by the women he's with. Not that he's, you know, not that he is not necessarily uh, uh, turned on by them, but he is definitely, I mean, you see that, that vanity and that narcissism come out where it's, it's, it's about, it's not about them. It's about him at that point. Yes. He loves his ass as much as we love his ass. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he does. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Carla. One other interesting thing that about the threesome scene is that, you know, he's talking to them about this music and in and, and his very uh, clinical way, he expects them to be impressed by it, but they're not only not impressed by it, but they're, you know, Elizabeth is like, ah, I don't know about you because, you know, you really like, like what you were saying. And then that's where I start to think that, you know, the fantasy and the real world start to kind of meld, but also fall apart. Because I just don't see how you go straight from that scene to suddenly they're having this amazing threesome and everybody seems to be getting the satisfaction that they deserve. And it just really, to me, it it feels like both Christy and Elizabeth would have been kind of you know like maybe looking at each other like eh, you checking the time because I'm I'm ready to go if you are, um, so it's almost like just just like in so many things his perception of himself and of what he does is just elevated by like a thousand. I have to wonder if these sex scenes are as sexy as he's you know narrating them to be. Um, so yeah, Sarah's like shaking her head, like, yeah, everybody's shaking their head, like, no, it's not because it's probably not. And the fact that, you know, there are all of these incredibly good looking people that he manages to pull into bed, realistically, could they maybe be less attractive? And instead, they're just, you know, these basically models that he's conceiving of. But, you know, that doesn't really have anything to do with the music, but I just really wanted to point that out. Well, no, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good point. Cause yeah, I think, I mean, cause we did, you know, we did talk about how attractive his physique is, 
But I do think that's it, is I do think he has this different persona in his head than what is reality, you know? And you see that a lot with the way people talk about him. When people are actually talking about him, like in the end when his lawyer is talking about because he doesn't think he's talking to Patrick Bateman and he talks about what a what an he, how he he looks down on Patrick Bateman and how Patrick Bateman could never end up murdering these people because he's not, you know, he's just an idiot or he's just a, I don't remember the exact words he uses. Um but that's what's so interesting is he has this different persona of himself and the rest of the world in general except for like Gene and we'll get into Gene a little bit. Cause I think that's a very interesting dynamic to talk about. Um, but as with the exception of like her and a couple of other people, people kind of don't respect him at all. They look at him as really down on the totem pole compared to everybody else. So it's just an interesting thing where I think he is more in love with himself than anybody else could ever be. Um, and yes, he is absolutely, like we've said, his physique is incredible, but if you don't have anything else behind that and you don't have any care or love or any actual heart or soul or persona, then that physical beauty doesn't mean anything. That'll just go away. But that's why, that's why it's also interesting the way that he interacts with, with Lewis, because Mm -hmm. that is the one person that even in his imagination he can't seem to bring himself to kill because he's startled by this guy wanting him and i don't think it was just you know the 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 gay panic that is so prevalent in in media i think legitimately he was brought up short because he was it was completely unexpected he fully expects people to um to fall all over themselves to get to him and this is a guy who in this imagine this um, imagined world of his, where everybody is so attractive, he's one of the people who happens to belong to his world, who is kind of not, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it's just I thought that it was like a really interesting change in the dynamic that that we've seen in the the whole film when you compare it to. The way that that he treats Lewis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then I think also with Gene, too, you know, in the end with what he ends up not doing to Gene, which we'll talk about because I think, yeah. And in the books, that's explored even further. The thing with Gene is really explored a lot, a lot more. Um, but, but I want to actually, we're going to skip ahead a little bit on the outline here. And I want to talk about the men and then we'll get to the women. But I want to talk about the men in this movie. Um, I want to talk about, first of all, the fact that every single person gets confused for everyone else because they all pretty much look alike. So I want to talk about that and what you think, why you think they did that. What do you think the reason was behind that, Carla? That I thought was super cool that it was done that way because it's very telling that everybody confuses each other for somebody else you were talking about when um paul allen thinks that patrick bateman is a whole other person to the point where he's agreeing to have dinner with him and has just no idea who this guy really is he keeps talking about his um his partner and and you know Patrick as that dude is just like oh yeah of course you know like that's how she is um, but the thing that's most interesting in that is that yes it happens to all of those guys because they're all little interchangeable 
in that in that way but it happens the most to Patrick and in his interpretation of himself where he sees himself as somebody who should be higher up than everybody else he's still as the narrator telling us that everybody thinks he's somebody else and at first he kind of attributes that to his um chameleonic uh amazing way of blending in with the world but what it's really telling us especially towards the end is that he is absolutely disposable as disposable as anybody else if in fact if not more so because he comes to realize nobody likes him nobody thinks he's particularly interesting or uh as special as he seems to tell himself that he is so it's just oh I, I absolutely love the way that that was handled because it really not only gives you that sense that yes all of them are after the same thing including the hairstyle the business cards the suits the the glasses the rampant consumerism that is you know one-upping each other over and over again but that they're all so lost in it that nobody really cares who the other person is and i that just oh absolutely brilliant and it also sets it up so that towards the end you don't really know who to believe about what when it comes to alibis and when it comes to to anything because even people telling i was gonna say jason bateman huh wrong bateman Wrong dude here. <laughs> My apologies to Jason Bateman. <laughs> I mean, also, he, he can do like the dead in the eyes thing sometimes, which I don't know if it's intentional, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, but yeah, so Patrick Bateman, he is constantly trying to throw his weight around and he comes to find out he has none which, you know, he might attribute to his diet and exercise routine. But, ah, I, I just, I, I can't get over how perfect and brilliant it is his commentary on the 80s, on 80s men, and on how somebody may or may not be able to get away with something because he's so interchangeable. Yeah, they're all Stepford, Stepford men. Um, I mean, they, they really... I... <laughs> I say that jokingly, but they really are almost clones of each other in, in a way. Um, and, and even, you know, even Patrick says that when Paul Allen first comes into the, the boardroom and calls him Marcus and he's like, I don't know why he keeps confusing me for Marcus. So-and-so I don't remember what Marcus is last. I think it was Marcus what his last name was. And he's like, well, maybe it's because of his affinity for this type of designer suit and Oliver Peebles glasses. Um, But then it continues on (laughs) through the movie until he kills Paul. Um, And it's, again, it's probably that time period where everyone was trying to reach that level of what they thought was perfection. And it ended up with a lot of people looking alike and not having any sort of individuality whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, the 80s had their 
their share of that, but not once you got to the level of uh, your your Wall Street mergers and acquisition people. So yeah, it was it was actually uh, quite interesting. I know I say that word a lot. Quite interesting how they keep confusing each other, even in that beginning scene when they're in the restaurant. And the one, I forget which character it was, says, oh, Paul Allen's over there. And Patrick's like, no, Paul Allen is actually over there on the other side of the restaurant having dinner with so-and-so. Um, so even within Patrick's little circle, they're getting each other confused. Um, and again, it, they, I think it's just a commentary on the time where people are, are disposable, people are interchangeable. Um, and with everyone, all these vice presidents just getting paid to not do anything, yeah, you are. You're disposable. Um, they'll get the next one in that looks just like you and throw them in your office, and that's the end of that. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense whatsoever. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah, Sarah, uh, Sasha, sorry. I mean, I, I'm going to say the same thing everybody else did. They're just... They're all clones. They're all disposable. It's just what it is. And it cracks me up that they're all, they're all the same guy. Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, one of them is a psychopath and is killing people. But, you know, other than that, they're all, they're all the same. They're interchangeable. You could pick one up, put them down, and nobody would even know that you swapped them. You would never even know. Um, so I don't know what the purpose behind it necessarily was unless it's just that like none of it matters you know it's just next one off the factory line let's keep them rolling um but beyond that they're they're all the same i can't really add any more content than that <laughs> well i think it is sort of i think a lot of what it's saying it plays back into the 80s and to the capitalism and to the greed and to the fact that None of these men care about anything other than status, money, symbolism. We're going to get into the business card scene here in just a second um, because that really, really showcases that. I mean, but none of them care about anything. They don't have any feelings. Uh, honestly, I think any of them are capable of doing what Patrick Bateman does in this movie. I think it's in them. And I think that's what's so interesting about this is it's really – what Patrick Bateman does when he's killing people, when he's murdering people, is he's almost getting this inner rage that I think all these men are feeling because they have to fit into this weird mold. And so that inner rage is coming out and killing people. I'm not saying that's healthy at all, but that's what I think a lot of where that comes from is that he's having to fit into this mold and has had to fit into this mold. And like has been said, he is low, lowest on the totem pole. Um, he has the least respect of anybody there except for maybe Lewis. I think Lewis is the only one that has less respect. And that goes into the whole, um, I think that also goes into the whole um, homophobia thing. Um, which, you know, there is a lot of that with these men in there. There's a lot of the gay panic. There's also, you briefly hear them talking about AIDS in this movie. Um, so you had a lot of that as well. So I think a lot of these men are Patrick Bateman. They're all the same. Um, Patrick Bateman is the only one that you see 
execute a lot of that inner rage that all these men have. Uh, you'll also see, I wouldn't doubt that most of these men have sexually assaulted or raped a woman. Um, I wouldn't doubt that at all. I don't think any of these men have any love or respect for women. I think they're all probably sexist, misogynistic assholes. Um, and we'll get into the women here shortly. But yeah, I think I think it's just I think it's just interesting that that they all are the same. They're all interchangeable. And I think that was a brilliant way of doing that, especially because they're all white men and they all have that white male privilege thing. And and that's a lot of why um, Patrick Bateman gets away with a lot of the stuff he does uh, get away with. Um, Sasha, you wanted to add something there? Yeah, it's it's the ongoing theme for the episodes that I've been on. It's the rich white dude problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, that was such a, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's get into the business card scene because I just think this is a good scene to talk about just because um, I was talking to my mom. My mom's not going to listen to this episode because my mom would never in a million years watch this movie, even though she likes Christian Bale, but she would never watch this movie. But I said you should watch the business card scene because there's no murder in it. And it's just an interesting way of showing the vacant, you know, capitalism and what greed and rich stuff and all being all about money with the, how little um, – how that really doesn't have very much importance in the world, especially since they're comparing business cards that all look exactly the same and yet they're all like – this one's better. This one's better. This one's better. And it's just such a great way of examining that fragile white male ego. Cause I also want to lead into that. So we'll talk about the business card scene. Then we're going to talk about the fragile white, white male ego and stuff. Um, so Carla, what are your thoughts on the business card scene? First of all, it's hilarious. It's <laughs> one of the funniest scenes in the whole thing, because it is all just a giant pee contest where, you know, each one in turn, you know, they take out their card and they discuss the the printing and the paper and the the different color for the, the different name for white, which just reminds me of this uh, toothpaste commercial from like maybe the nineties or two thousands, where the, all the kids in in a kindergarten class are being taught colors, and the teacher is like, "Okay, what color are my teeth?" It, you know, the expected answer is white, and the kids are like, "Stucco." Ecru. <laughs> and it was just like this, like the same level of um, of security and maturity as well. Um, and then the fact that, you know, Paul Allen comes in and just, they've all, you know, Patrick feels so satisfied. Well, oh, my card is still the best. You know, he's feeling a little insecure, but then Paul Allen drops the card just simply like, no big deal. And poof, everybody's out of the water. And not only that, but later on, Lewis has the nerve to show up with his fancy card. Uh, yeah. That everybody's like, this loser has the best card. And, you know, as far as, you know, stakes can go, this is one of the lowest stakes arguments and, you know, tasteful side peen measuring contests that <laughs> anything can possibly have. It's, it's business cards. Nobody except for you losers look at business cards. They end up <laughs> on the bottom of people's purses. Occasionally you find it at a perfect time when you need to throw out your gum. But that's that that's just emblematic of one of the biggest things that this movie's calling out is that 
this is their big excitement for the day at the big conference table. This is all that's getting done today is looking at these business cards because they're going to go back, you know, they're going to sit there in, in the meeting, do absolutely nothing, get nothing accomplished for this company. They're going to go back to their giant offices and stare at their empty um, agendas and feel superior to everybody because they can. And that's that's what it comes down to with a lot of what's wrong with the country then as now mm-hmm. is that all you have to be is mediocre, rich and white, and you can get away with doing nothing while people uh, work their butts off for you to actually make the money that is going into your pockets and into your probably incredibly high budget for um, for cars to drive you around while you ignore your fiance. <laughs> yep. Yep. And Sarah. Um, yeah, I, I, that whole scene is, is so ridiculous in, in a, in a funny way. I mean, it, it's just, you know, why don't you just whip them out on the table and measure? I mean, that's really what it was. Um, Compen- you know, <laughs> what are you compensating for, guys? Like, really, what are you compensating for? Uh, and, I mean, y- you're right. They they all look freaking the same. I mean, it's a freaking business card. This is what you're trying to impress people with. It's a piece of paper with your name and phone number on it. It's nothing special. So the fact that you're... Uh, your typeset or, or font um, is whatever, and your uh, uh, paper is, or the color of your paper is bone or, you know, uh, eggshell or whatever. This, this, is, this is what you're concerned about. But again, it goes back to that thing in the 80s about status and about trying to be the best and about trying striving for that what they view as perfection um but the scene is just so funny in the complete absurdity of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and i think that's i I think that's why it's such a great scene because the, the whole thing is it really is it's just so absurd um but at the same time, it is very indicative of that time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Sasha. It's again, it's such a great scene. The, the whole movie's fantastic, but that scene is probably one of the more iconic ones. And it goes back to Aaron, like you were saying at the beginning, like he, he's visibly sweating. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at the business cards, where like you can see his anxiety rising, like. Oh crap! Oh God! What like what? Why is his card so much better than mine? And again, like we said, you know, it's a it's all about the size of the dick. Like, let's just call a spade a spade, guys. Come on! But it watching him have that moment of panic and just sheer frustration, where he finally is just like, and can't hold the card and drops it, and is just overwhelmed by this perceived slight against him Mm -hmm. um because that's really what it is he thinks that it's against him it's a personal attack 
this business card is better than his. And it's like, that's not, you're right, Carla. It's what I dig out of the bottom of my purse to throw away gum. Like, <laughs> nobody cares. I you knew know. I was I... alone. <laughs> <laughs> or you throw them into that bowl to win, like, a free meal or something. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even have business cards. I did, at one point, I had business cards, and they printed something wrong and I just never got them again. I'm like, who I'm a freaking teacher, people. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um, <clears throat> so it's just funny, but it is very much that business world because it's their, it, they call it a calling card for a reason. I mean, it's how they get known and what they do. And I don't, maybe he was really upset that he wasn't going to win the free lunch. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it's just, um, I think it's, it really is just a dick measuring contest with cards. That's really all it is, is whose dick is bigger. And every single card looks exactly the same. I mean, really, they all look exactly the same. There's no real difference between them. There's nothing really that special. They all keep seeing something different that you don't see, which is why it's so great. I think if they had done that card scene and every card would have looked really shockingly different, it would have, wouldn't have worked as well. Because it's really showing how how meaningless this is, how meaningless their world is, how meaningless this contest is. It's like, who gives a fuck who has the better business card? It doesn't fucking matter. It has no bearing on anything. Nobody else outside of your world is going to care about this at all. And then the fact that later on when Lewis shows up and he's got that business card that just outweighs them all and Lewis is supposed to be the biggest loser of them all and that leads Patrick to almost kill him because of the fact that he has a better business card than him. That's the sole reason he goes into the bathroom to try and kill him. And then, of course, he doesn't because... Um, you know, because Lewis has that whole thing with him of saying, oh, yes, yes, I've been noticing you. I like you. Um, and that real genuine moment where he's trying to genuinely connect with Patrick as a human being. And that's not something Patrick can do or is used to. So I just it's just so fascinating. It's just a fascinating scene to watch. And it's so interesting to watch Christian Bale's performance in that scene because you watch that panic level rise and the way his voice speaks when he's just like impressive and you know his voice is shaking and it's like he can barely swallow and it's like his throat is tightening up and it's just so incredible the way he does that because it's a business card and the fact that he can make that seem like he's having he's literally having a panic attack over a business card it's just incredible incredible performance once again just amazing I don't think anyone else could have done that the way he did that I mean it was just outstanding and the fact still I will always be pissed that he didn't get rewarded for this performance Sasha um I just want to throw out that all business cards are the same size <laughs> well you can get the different shapes just saying but yes, all the same size there's a standard business card size it's true it's true it's true I want to just combine these. I really do think it's important to talk about um, the fact that this film is talking a lot about the fragility of the white male ego, I think, and also the fact that white men can get away with whatever they want to get away with. So, Carla, what are your thoughts on those two things in this movie? I think, you know, this movie was released in 2000, and 
we're it, even to this day we're still looking at issues of representation in, in film for women people of color black people and so i i don't know whether the decision to make the unhoused person be a, a black man was to point out anything other than well there's somebody living unhoused in the streets so he's going to be a black person so you know it's that question of is there intent um behind the casting or you know what it may have been um and you contrast that with the the fact that all of the um all of the sex workers were white and thin and everything which you know again that that may just be patrick's fantasy and his unreliable narratorship um projecting these attributes onto them no matter what they actually look like but still you know they're all uh thin attractive conventional white women but just the fact that they're sex workers and that those are the people who are most realistically actually Patrick's um, victims. You know, when we when we think about the fact that who knows how many people Patrick Bateman actually killed, whether it was all of them, just a few of them, there certainly were, were some people, but the ones that are most believable are the sex workers and the unhoused person. And that, that definitely, first of all, any statistician and any TV show even will point out that when it comes to to crime, the easiest victims to overlook are these populations. And so, you know, if, if you're um, adventuring out in a on a killing spree, these are the ones that you would that a lot of serial kill, serial killers go for precisely because they tend to go unnoticed. Um, and going back to the point about all of these um, rich, yuppie, fit, entitled white men who really get nothing done, and who are so interchangeable, that's part and parcel of the you know, um, white supremacy deluxe package. That's exactly one of the benefits of being part of that demographic, that you can really get away with everything up to murder, assault, war, um, just about anything. And people will give you the benefit of the doubt. We were talking earlier about how there's a lot of reimagining of Reagan and his his policies and his legacy the same can be said for for the bushes you know if, if anything w was even worse and yet now he's treated as this you know this little old grandpa dude who oh he paints isn't that cute it's like he also murdered scores of innocent people but you know i guess we can forget about that um and that's it, it's amazing that you know if the film wasn't and and the books of course because it's based on on the books but if those properties weren't trying to point 
that out specifically to those populations as anything more than a stereotype, not even as as pointing it out that's like, look, this is what we're what we as white U.S. people are doing to the people uh, that we've marginalized. I I don't know that it's you know that it's a conscious decision to highlight that versus well, of course, this is what they're going to look like. So that's who we have to cast. Yeah, and I'm glad that you also brought up Bush. Yeah, because Bush is now looked at as, oh, that silly, silly man. And look at his great, wonderful friendship with Michelle Obama. That's the big thing, of course, that. And and the same thing was done with McCain. And yeah, we, we like yeah. to do that a lot. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, to... And certainly, you know, like Barack Barack Obama is still very much beloved by by many, but I wonder what you know, like certainly a huge portion of of the population does not see the his legacy in the same way that they even saw Clinton's, mm-hmm. because immediately you went straight from Obama to a freaking fascist dictator, mm-hmm. and that that tells you a lot about how. As a, as a nation, we're looking at the the one black president who's been allowed to be in office. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Sasha. Um, I'm so glad that Carla pointed out uh, the probability of actual victims being the sex workers and the um, unhoused fellow. Because it, it's true. You know, like, if you're going to go for anybody, those are the ones you go for. But it it is, he's so interchangeable that he's the perfect predator. You know, and it is that white, again, I keep going back, is rich white dudes, man. I don't know what's wrong with the wick, rich, rich, <laughs> <laughs> You're so tired of saying it that you can't even pronounce it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, because we were just talking about it on BDSM, too. My entire, like, tongue, my mouth just stopped working. (laughs) But it's that wealthy white dude. We'll just switch it up. Um, The entitlement and just the expectation. It's the expectation that people will do what they want when they want, how they say it, without argument. Mm-hmm. And that they can get away with it. They just, because they, historically, they have. Historically, they can do whatever, and it's fine. They, oh, we're going to give you a slap on the wrist. You know, oh, you brutally raped a girl behind a dumpster to the point where the people who came to rescue her were traumatized. Oh, no, no. But he's got such a great sports career ahead of him. Why would we punish him? Oh, I don't know, because he ruined a girl's fucking life. But he's mm-hmm. white and he's perfect. Okay. Over it. Over it. So it, it's just that entitlement that they feel like they can continue to do this. And I'm going to stop talking uh, now. Uh, My brain just shut off. <laughs> Well, no, it's very, it's true. And it's a lot of what we've talked about so far this year. And I think it's going to be a big theme for the podcast this year. Not everything, of course, but I mean, further on when we're talking about other things uh, is the fact that uh, 
you know, white men control a lot of things and white men get away with a lot of things. And you'll even see it when a white man kills somebody uh, and the way they are portrayed in the media. And I mean, you know, oh, well, he was such a good person or he did this or nobody ever saw it or seeing like the perfect family photos or the perfect photo of him next door. And then you'll see when you see um, an innocent black man or black woman being murdered by the police, you see the exact opposite of let's just find however we can villainize this person. Um, you see it when a woman is raped and they put her on trial and they don't put him on trial. And, you know, the whole thing of with Brock Turner was he was the promising young man. And that, of course, is where the promising young woman title comes from. But he was, you know, that's what the judge said is he was a promising young man. He's He's a rapist. He's not a promising young man. That goes out the window. You don't get to get away with that. That's when you violently brutalize someone like that. And with Patrick Bateman, with him targeting um, sex workers and with him targeting um, anyone who basically the way he goes about it and the way a lot of, and this is true of a lot of serial killers, is they will go after people that society won't quote unquote miss. They're the people that society has left behind. It doesn't care about as much. And they know that. Um, you look at people um, like Jeffrey Dahmer and who he targeted and the fact that the cops literally brought back one of his victims who was a teenager and brought the teenager back to his place because of the fact that they were trusting this white male over this young person of color because of the fact that this was a white man so they could trust him and this is a teenager and they're bringing a teenager back and so that's why this is so realistic it's so realistic of the fact that a white man who is seen as being good or perfect or living in this wonderful world can get away with this stuff I mean the fact that so many people tell Patrick Bateman that he's a nice guy when he's so clearly not a nice guy even without the murder he's not a nice guy and but people keep telling him that. I mean, you even have a detective who any detective could clearly see this guy is full of shit. And the detective doesn't even do anything, even though in your mind, when you see the detective, at least me, when I first watched the movie, because I hadn't read the book um, at that point, I read it later. You think, oh, well, this detective is going to do something because, come on, he clearly knows something. Even when he pulls out the Huey Lewis in the News CD, I'm thinking, oh, he knows something. He's playing him. But he's not. That's the thing is he gets away with everything. And in the end, he gets away with it, no matter how many people you think he actually killed or didn't kill. And, um, but the fact that he's getting away with it says a lot about that. The fact that you have serial killers today who women still lust after them, who women will marry them. Who, you know, when, you know, that the Ted Bundy tapes documentary came out, there were women who came out and said Ted Bundy was so cute and attractive. The fact that, you know, I'm really worried about the new Jeffrey Dahmer thing that Ryan Murphy is making because it's Ryan Murphy. And, um, yeah, so I'm just hoping that that's not another one of glamorizing him. And the and it's just it's just. You know, that's the way we are as a society. That's what we do when they're white men is we let them get away with a lot more. You see that with any kind of, you know, we've had a lot of mass shootings here in Colorado, sadly. And with every white man that did that, it was looking for 
that reason and not just accepting the fact that these people are bad and they're evil and we don't need to glamorize them. We don't need to say, oh, well, they were such a good this. They were such a good that. They actually did this. They, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, like people go back to Hitler, you know, donated stuff to charity. Hitler was like, I guess, wasn't he like, he was like a vegetarian or something like that or vegan or something, animal rights person. But he was a monster. He was an absolutely atrocious person who did atrocious things. And you can never, ever excuse that. And so I think that's what this movie is also commenting on. And I that's another reason I think it was good. Women, a woman directed this and women wrote it because uh, the screenplay, because, yeah, I don't think that would have come across with Oliver Stone, frankly, because Oliver Stone has major issues. Anyway, okay, well, I want to move on to the women, and we're just going to combine them. I do want to talk about Jane a little bit separately, but um, talking about the women, the girlfriends, and the lovers, and and the prostitutes, uh, we've talked about a little bit about that. But what are your thoughts overall on how they handled women in this movie, Carla? I didn't quite know how to feel about it. I know that, you know, when you're dealing with a character like this whose primary um, victims are women that that kind of lands you in you know back to into a corner because you know how can you portray them but as victims and you know um, what leeway is there in, in that to give them any kind of agency or or anything like that and I think that that's just it, it's I don't think that this is something, the, the kind of movie, where it can necessarily be, fault, be faulted for that. Because you are talking about a monster of a person. You are talking about somebody who um, is doing these atrocious things and also devolving as a person. Um and you're, you know, since the movie is centered on him, there's not really, there's not really a lot of room there to do much more. I think that the closest we get to that really is when we're when we're looking at Chris Christie, because she's she's the one that I think we get the most from as a character of the sex workers that Patrick deals with. Um, she's the one who really we we get more of a reaction out of. Um, or a, a more focus on her reactions in part because she, she comes up twice, you know, it, and it's, it's easy to, to say, you know, like she went through a horrible thing the first time that Patrick came into her life. Why would she go with him again? But money is money. And this is her job. And this is, you know, if she can, do this, make a lot of money. Maybe she has, you know, past due rent, you know, whatever her, her motives may have been. Um, we don't get a lot of that either. That's just left to speculation if you want to speculate about it. Um, but I think it's easy to dismiss her and her fate as her own problem. And I don't think that that's a complete story. And I don't think it's completely fair to her. Um, the rest of the women in, in, in the movie, the, the ones on Patrick's socioeconomic level are, because this is through his eyes, 
they're seen as vapid, shallow, kind of worthless. Um, you know, Evelyn, his fiance, is just frivolous as hell and doesn't really matter in his eyes. So therefore, she doesn't matter in our eyes. She's, you know, he he's saying, you know, she's probably having an affair with you know, whatever his friend's name was. And we don't really know that that's true. I mean, they were cozy, but were they actually cozy or were they cozy in his eyes? Who knows? And his his girlfriend, who's, what's her name even? Like, that's how... Courtney, yes, thank you. He has her on the side for no real reason other than, you know, everybody's doing it and to fit in as human, I must also take up a second or whatever. He just uses her for our candy and for company when he's bored because he's not listening to her troubles. Like he knows there's something going on. She tries to tell him as much. And he brushes it aside because it's not his concern. And that's just part of, you know, if, if you're talking about the psychology of the character, he's, you know, uh, he's antisocial disorder. He has uh, apparently borderline personality disorder and narcissistic disorder. This is according to like several places that I've, that I've looked at that say that this is, these are his diagnoses supposedly. But yeah so maybe he can't care and that's part of why we get these um, interpretations of of women and and their place in his world it's still super sad because you know it, it just for whatever the reasons may be and whatever the role is in this film and and how that fulfills it it's just still really sad to to see these women go through these horrible things and we don't learn even their actual names because you know the whole time we know Christy as Christy and that's not her name even I mean we never find that out but but the, so the interesting thing though about these other women is that Patrick doesn't really even care about them enough to want to kill them and also, because they are part of his echelon, they are maybe too good to kill. You know, they're they're not sex workers. They're women in this elevated world of his that he perceives it to be. So, you know, th- there's just a lot to unpack there. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And Sarah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, what Carla said. Um the one thing I did notice um, that I just wanted to touch on, and, and actually Carla did bring it up with Christy when he goes back to her um, that second time. And after she tells him, you know, I don't, you know, I, I can't go with you. The last time I ended up in the emergency room um, and he just throws more money at her. Um, it's almost to me, and this is just the way I'm interpreting it is, you know, with women, you throw enough money at them, you can get them to do anything. Um, and again, that, that was the impression that I was getting from that whole scene. Um, and even with, with him in general, uh, as for Evelyn and Courtney, I mean, they, they were a side note. They weren't, 
he didn't care about either of them. He didn't care about Evelyn. She she was there because that's what is expected. You're a 27-year-old stockbroker on Wall Street. You should have a fiance. <laughs> you should get married. You should settle down. And I think that's what it was with Evelyn is he felt that that's what he needed to be doing. He didn't care about her. Uh, he didn't care about Courtney either. Um, the only one I think he did somewhat care about um, is uh, is Jean. Um, but I know we're going to get into that. <laughs> so I won't talk about that right now. I I mean, you guys, I think, summed it up beautifully. So I don't really have anything to add. Okay. Um, I'll just say I, I think what's interesting is when you watch some of these, especially when you watch Courtney, um, as far as for the women that are in his actual circle, she is so messed up. I mean, she's always drugged up and she's always, you know, the whole scene when she's in the back of the car and she's like, I just want to have children. I just want to have two perfect children and then my world will be amazing. And you know that she is hurting because first of all, she's in probably a very loveless relationship with her fiance, who's Lewis, who is a closeted man who I'm sure their relationship is just uh, horrible. Um, and then she is, I think she's in love with Patrick Bateman, who is this person who's totally unattainable because you can't read him and she wants him to reach out to her. And she has that whole scene, like right when they're talking about Easter and what are you doing for Easter? And she's like, Patrick, you know, and she's trying to say, and he's like, what, what is it? You look, you look great. You look great. What? I don't, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't care about her. He doesn't want to connect with her at all. Um, and I just think it's interesting because I think, I think this is a movie that you can totally forgive for not having fully fleshed out female characters because of the fact that the, this movie is told from Patrick Bateman's point of view. This is his story. And in his mind, women are not fully fleshed out. Women are objects. Women are objects for him to get off on, on both sexually and violently. So women mean nothing to him. And so because they mean nothing to him, you're not going to see them as fully fleshed out human beings. I do think um, it's interesting that um, the sex workers are a lot more fleshed out in some respects than Courtney and Evelyn, as far as like the fact that they seem a little bit more real and more down to earth, which I appreciated, um, especially Christy. Um, and Christy is the character when she is running and screaming and crying for help and banging on the doors and running down the hallway and running down the stairs, whether or not you believe all of this was actually what happened. It plays into the fact that, you know, women are always told if you're being raped or attacked to yell fire and not to scream something else because nobody's going to help you if it's another thing. And it also speaks to the fact that we as a society don't um, look at sex workers or don't we don't look at them in the same light. Women do the same thing. It's not just men. We look down on people that are in that field and we don't think they deserve the same amount of respect, which is total bullshit. And so we let them get hurt and let them get harmed. And that's why they are targeted by people like serial killers and stuff is because they are thought of as disposable in society. And so it really shows that when Christy is running down the hall and she's screaming and yelling at the top of her lungs and you got the sound of a chainsaw, how no one in the world could hear that or care or run out. 
you may think it's unbelievable, but to me, it's very believable that something like that would happen because nobody's going to give a crap about her, sadly. And, you know, who knows if anyone even reported her missing or anything like that, if you believe that he really did kill her. Um, so it is heartbreaking to watch her. And it's heartbreaking to watch her because you know she doesn't want to get in that limo. She doesn't want to get in that limo. But she needs the money. And so she has to choose between paying rent and getting in that limo. There's this great New Yorker article that came out that uh, it talks about a lot of different things. But it's all about someone wrote it about what I've learned about um, in the pandemic of how I have accepted unwanted touch. And it's a very amazing article. I think everybody should read it. And there's a part in there, and the one who wrote it, wrote it used to be a dominatrix. And she talks a lot about how in sex work, you accept a lot of things because you accept it because you need the money and it's part of your job. And I think that's a lot of what that is about. Because she, you can tell her, her attitude towards him, the first meeting versus the second meeting. Because in the first meeting, she has that whole scene where she's in the bathtub and she's like loving the luxury of it and loving drinking the champagne and all that stuff. And then you compare it to the second time when she's sitting there and she's watching him interact with his rich friend. And she knows how evil he is. And she's sitting there like... Oh my God, this, you know, like, what have I done? And the fact that she tries to sneak off and it's just so heartbreaking and sad to me to watch that because, you know, that has happened. I'm not saying the exact same thing, but you know, that has happened to a lot of women. And so it's just, it's just really sad, sad to watch. Uh, but I want to get into Jean now because Jean is interesting to me in the book. I do want to say, and I know, um, I know Sasha read the book. I know Carla read the book. Did you read the book? No. Oh, you didn't read the book, Sasha? Okay. Well, in the book, it's actually fleshed out a lot more. But, of course, Gene, he takes back. Gene, you've seen from the beginning, has this major crush on him. And when they're back at his apartment and he's looking for all these weapons and ways to kill her, and then he doesn't end up killing her. So I want to know what your thoughts are on that, Carla. With Gene, I don't know if she's... If she just she just lucked out on him having a um, a rare moment of conscience, but it doesn't seem that way. I've read a couple of theories that that they had that she and Patrick had maybe a history, and I'm like, I don't buy that. Um, I, I just don't see that being something that happened. But what uh, my my theory in looking at her is that she's you know she's very naive. She's very doe-eyed and because of his proximity to her because he spends probably more time with her than he does with any other woman in his life she is maybe one of the few real women the few real people even that he knows so you know he reached out to her at, at a moment where he needed to feel validated as a you know as a stud as a big sexy um desirable still important person and she saw it as her dreams coming true and um you know he never had any intention of taking her to Dorset as as you can tell by the fact that he's calling and making a reservation and the, the guy is like uh no we have nothing for tonight he's like oh fabulous thank you i'll take a table and da -da -da. and clearly there's no table so he's never he never has an, any intention in the movie of taking her 
anywhere other than to, to his apartment to try to kill her. But um, there's, I, I love it when a story, you know, it doesn't matter if it's book, TV, film, where there are two characters having a conversation and they're having two different conversations, but, you know, only one party knows that. And I think that's that's really a cool device because she thinks that his um, demurring and being like, oh, no, you know, like um, I could lose control. It's like, oh, I'm hot. He thinks I'm hot. He's going to lose control because a little old me. So she leaves feeling satisfied, even though she didn't get what she wants, because she still has a validation of um, her crush wanting to take her out. But he's like, no, seriously, I'm going to lose control and like cut you like hard. I already almost did it. Please leave. Um, and yeah, I, I think it does come down, come down to that, uh, to the fact that he can't avoid humanizing her simply because they spend so much time together, even though he doesn't think almost anything of her, um, or at least he thinks he doesn't until, until they're back in his apartment. And in that way, it reminds me a little bit of, of in Dexter, how there are instances in, in in Dexter's life when, you know, especially with, with his sister, Deb, when he's like, oh, wait, I actually have feelings and I'm concerned for my sister. It's not just the, you know, the familiarity. It's like, I actually love Deb. And with Rita, you're like, oh, what is this thing I'm feeling? And I actually like her kids. What the hell? Um, so I think it is, you know, in a more condensed version, that kind of of realization on his part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Sarah. Um, no, I completely agree with that. I think I, you know, I said earlier that I think he cared for her. I don't think he necessarily cared for her in 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 that type of way. But she is the only. <laughs> It's going to sound horrible, but she's really the only real woman in his life. Um, you look at Evelyn and Courtney and and how they are, and especially Evelyn, how just completely shallow and, and self-absorbed she is. And, and Courtney is just medicated all the time. Um, and so she, Jean, is really the only, I mean, real person not even just woman, but real person that he has any sort of relationship with. Even his, you know, so-called friends from uh, from the office. I don't think he had that type of relationship with them. Um, and I think he, like Carla said, he viewed her as more human than anyone else <clears throat> that he has uh, interacted with. And I, I. Think he just could not bring himself to do that to her, um, and like you said, you know they're they're having a conversation, but there's two different conversations going on. <laughs> how how she's interpreting what he's saying and what he's actually meaning. Um, so it was a, a rather interesting uh, a scene there. Um, and then when she goes back into the office and finds all his drawings, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there was 
a, a moment where she realized she uh, sort of dodged a bullet, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and I think that sort of ties into the uh, uh, what we'll talk about, I guess, with the uh, with the ending as well. Um, what what actually what we think actually happened. Sasha. So the notes that I wrote on Jean are similar to them. So she had genuine interest in him. And I think that was part of the, you know, what kept her out of his radar. Like I know that he was still looking for stuff, but then he had that moment. And I think that moment happened because she had genuine interest in him and she seemed so sad. And I think that emotion tricked something for him but I think the other two big things that I made note of are she's not a rich friend so she's not in that friend group circle of the rich she's also not expendable because she's not like if she went missing people would notice um so those were the kind of things that I made a note about her wondering if that's what saved her from a different fate is that people would notice that she was missing. Um, and then she just had that sad moment. And that's kind of when he, cause he had, what did he have in his hand? A nail gun? Yeah. Is it was a nail it was? gun. It was pointed right to her head. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. she, I can't even remember what she said, but she was very sad. And he just kind of like, there was something that snapped and he turned and was like, we're, we're done. Like go home, you know? And so I'm wondering if there was something that, there yeah well i think it was partly i mean you know he's has that nail gun to her head and she's asking him what he wants and he's just saying i really want a fulfilling relationship and all this garbage and then of course his phone also rings and he also gets a call from evelyn and it's also uh which wouldn't normally stop him uh in the book the only reason i'm bringing up the book is it's fleshed out a lot more with her there's a lot with her like I said, they have a whole scene where they actually go to dinner and he is struck by her, which I think is what a, what a couple of you have said already. Is he's struck with her realness because she thinks it's hilarious that they didn't actually have a reservation there. And she thinks it's funny that they get kicked out or something like that happens, if I'm remembering correctly. And he's like saying, I envision a life with her. I actually could see running on the beach with her and running hand in hand. And it's this weird thing where he all of a sudden is like, he still doesn't have respect for her, but he views her a lot differently than he is does any other woman. And I think even though they cut a lot of that out, I think that's what they're trying to show in this scene is that um, – he doesn't want to hurt her because for a moment there, I don't think it's that he actually has any genuine feelings for her, but I think it's that he's like sees her as a real person. Like she's not a cardboard cutout as these other people and she's not disposable like some of the other people and that he's killed. So I think it's like that. It's like, she's the most real person in his circle of people that he's around. So he decides not to kill her. Um, but I think if she hadn't left and she had stayed there, I think he would have killed her eventually. Um, but I, but I think it's all also interesting that of all the characters that are alive in the end, she is the only one who discovers who he truly is in the end. She's the only one who discovers his drawings, discovers what's going on in his head. I mean, she doesn't know what he's 
done or maybe not done, but she discovers his drawings, discovers all that disturbing stuff. And she's the only one that does. And I think that says something because she's supposed to be the most real person in his little circle there. She's the one he let go. She's the one he ended up not doing harm to. I mean, you could also say that about Lewis too, because he didn't hurt Lewis when he had the chance to. Um, But I think with her, it's a little bit different because of course she is the one that he's around all the time. But I just, I just think she's an interesting character. And um, while I mixed and have a lot of issues with the book on some ends and the book is like the book we were, Carla and I talked about this on our bonus Christian Bale episode, but the book is extreme. I mean, this movie is, I mean, this movie was criticized for being very violent and graphic. That's nothing compared to the book in the book, in the ending scene where he's doing his confession. A lot of the stuff he says in there, you see in the book. I mean, I think he literally like fucks a skull, like a human skull. If I'm remembering correctly, (laughs) Carla, you can correct me if I'm wrong because I know you read the book. But I think he even fucks a human skull. Yeah, I remember something like that. Like I haven't, I haven't been able to go back and reread that book ever. And I yeah, tried once, and I gave up because I was like, Pass. "There's a movie now, and it doesn't, you know, mess with my brain the way that this book does." Yeah, the book is insane. I mean, the book is to a whole nother level and the book you kind of read and you go, there's no way this guy did all this stuff. Cause it's just, it's nuts what he does in, in, in that book. It's like to a whole nother level, but I want to wrap up talking about the ending. And if you do think he killed people or not, because there's, that's a big debate with this movie and the book. Um, and then I also want to ask really quickly. So we're going to find these two. So talk about the ending and then why you think it's important that this movie was written and directed by women carla oh my god like okay i'm gonna try to condense it because i have so many theories but just to keep it tight and light okay my theory and nobody ever ever agrees with me on this and that's fine because it makes it more unique and treasurable um is that his whole game of of one-upmanship with paul allen extends even to murder. I think Paul Allen was also a serial killer. And Patrick Bateman was just incensed that this guy's one-upping him in every single way, including this. Like, he's doing everything he wants to do and getting away with it so much harder than he does. So I think um, he comes to realize that, you know, first of all, he just hates the guy. He hates that the guy has everything that he wants um, without even seemingly trying. So I think he absolutely kills Paul Allen. And the whole, you know, the whole thing with the attorney at the end of the movie being like, oh, but I had uh, lunch or dinner with, with Paul Allen twice in London in the past 10 days. This dude, again, all of them are interchangeable. Nobody knows who the hell anybody else. He's calling Patrick Davis even though apparently they talk all the freaking time and Paul Allen himself and just calling him Paul Allen, like, you know, like he's a hair care line. Um, Paul Allen just, you know, he's, he's also confusing Patrick for somebody else completely. So that's like my little theory. Now, as far as 
the the ending and whether Patrick killed yeah Patrick killed a bunch of people. I don't think he killed all of the people that he imagines that he did, and I don't think that um, that a lot of what happened towards the end happened the way that he is narrating to us. Um, there's so much made about that hilarious moment when he's you know shooting the the police officers and then the 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 car explodes as if he you know he had rigged it with TNT before and even he looks at, at, at the gun like what kind of bullets are these you know it's it's just like a really far out there moment um, the the fact that we start off that rampage with him trying to get money out of a kitten, you know, by stuffing him to the ATM because the ATM prompted him to put the cat in there. That makes zero sense, right? So why should I believe that he did all of those things and that he can then, um, the next day, that that Gene isn't freaking out that Patrick isn't there like oh somebody you know kill a bunch of people i was so worried that you were one of them no there is nothing there's nothing so i don't think that that final rampage happened or it at least it didn't go beyond maybe the older lady and i even doubt that because of the cat thing because you know like cats are not going to give you money if you feed them to the atm that's asking you to feed them cats it doesn't work that way you know like the atm is not alf the atm does not care about cats so let's forget about that, sir, madam, and everybody else. Um, so yeah, that that's my theory with the Paul Allen thing. Um, and I don't care whether I'm right or wrong. I'm taking that with me because I think it's fascinating and I like uh, making up stuff. Um, but as far as, you know, why it matters that it was um, adapted and, and directed by women... I think it, it matters a whole hell of a lot because I think that in all of the ways that mattered, the women were not objectified. Um, like as I, as I discussed before, there wasn't so much of the male gaze physically in the presentation of the women that all of the the sexual and objectifying presentation was of Patrick Bateman by his own hand. Like the whole... Anytime that you see him shirtless walking around and, you know, like you see his butt and you see all of the, you know, the glamorous thighs and the rippling biceps and abs and all of that. This is how he wants to see himself. And this is part of why it doesn't matter what the women actually look like. To him, they looked hot because that's what he thinks he deserves. So, so uh, there's that. There's the... Um, the overall idea that if it had been directed by a man and had been portrayed by a less thoughtful actor, you would have gotten a completely different movie because you wouldn't have... I don't think the director and a different actor would have been in on the joke because the joke is Patrick Bateman. The joke is his entire existence um, and... You know, again, Leo DiCaprio is a perfectly fine actor. There are many other actors who are great. Um, there are many male directors who are great, but you would not have gotten the nuance that you did if any one of them had had taken this on. And um, 
I, I just, uh, so part of the end, well, first I, I wanted to point out that he constantly talks about, oh, I have to return some videotapes, like the way that some people use an excuse, like, oh, oh, my grandma died. You know, how many times does your grandma have to die? Like, okay, how many videotapes are you renting? You know, are you just whole hand, you know, the only person keeping Blockbuster in business at this point. Um, but when he says the confession has meant nothing and he's sitting in front of a sign that says this is not an exit and i just thought that was like a beautiful juxtaposition um because you know he he's at that point looking for the attention and uh i, I don't think that there's remorse behind his confession I think that he's, you know, for one thing, it is a cry for help, um, not because he wants to stop doing murders, but but simply because like he can't tell the line between reality and um, and fantasy anymore, and that's what he wants help with, just so he can go back to doing murders and keep things clear. Like that's that's all he cares about, um, and he wants full credit. He's insisting to the attorney that no, 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 no. I'm Patrick Bateman. I did them. I did them. It was me, 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 me. Um, even though he's getting away with it. You know, like, there's no exit from his anguish. Because nobody believes you because you've done such a good job of playing a nobody and an everybody that you're indistinguishable from anybody else. Even to those who are supposed to be closest to you. Amen to all of all of that. And I love your theory that Paul I've this is the first time I have ever heard anyone say that about Paul Allen, but I love that theory. I think that is an awesome theory. <laughs> well, and like the thing that spurred it is that I was reading this thing where it was talking about the um, the apartment and how mm-hmm. the, the lady, you know, she's showing the apartment and it's like I mean, realistically, is this even Paul Allen's apartment? But the thing that like got me thinking is that the fact that she wasn't even just like, uh, sir, this is definitely not the apartment that you're looking for. She got cagey. Yeah. And she got testy and she was like, we are not talking about this. It's like, okay, I just finished clearing all the blood off of this damn place. I'm going to sell it. If it's the last thing I do, you need to leave before my, um, my two o'clock shows up. So that made me think, Hey, no that's i i like that theory i do like that theory and his the first and it's awesome that it's the first time because i've heard so many theories and that's just that's awesome to hear one that i haven't heard before i love that (laughs) and sarah no that is that actually is an interesting theory (laughs) um not my theory but i do like the theory um because who doesn't want to one-up jared leto um, but anyway, <laughs> I know Aaron's love for Jared Leto. <laughs> I don't have love. For I know. I, that was, I was, <laughs> sorry. My I have love for Jordan Catalano. I don't. Right. Love yes. Jared <laughs> sorry. Jared Leto is Jordan Catalano. That is it. That's all I care about. Anyway. Um, we'll talk further about that in the, my so-called life episode. <laughs> um, my theory, um, is uh i think i think he killed paul i i think that is that is true um i think he killed the homeless man 
and the uh, the uh, two sex workers, or actually it was the one, and then his his friend, mm-hmm. um, whose name is eluding me at the moment. Um, I think he actually did kill them. The rest of it, I I don't think so. Um, you know, and I'm kind of going back to the uh, the medication. Um, I think there may be some sort of hallucination psychosis going on there, maybe. Um, that's kind of my theory. Uh, I don't know if that's anyone else's theory. Um, but it seems that what he's seeing is not necessarily what other people are seeing. Like when he is carrying Paul Allen's body out of the apartment or the apartment complex, and there's just this trail of blood along the floor. And the security guard just sort of looks up and goes, mm, and then looks back down. I'm like, do you not see the trail of blood coming out of this bag? And as he's trying to get the body into the trunk of the uh, cab, I mean, number one, the cab driver doesn't think this is weird. And number two, uh, Lewis shows up at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't think this is odd. Um, and now, now I know you brought up uh, Christy banging on the doors and and with the chainsaw, and I'm thinking no one hears this, but you do make an interesting point there. With when it does come to women, you're supposed and and you're in trouble, yell fire, um, because that gets people's attention. Not I need help. Um, so okay, maybe, um, but even at that, no one addresses that some woman is found at the base of the staircase with a chainsaw on her back i you know so there's there's things like that that kind of make me question you know did this really happen or is this his fantasy hallucination um and then when he does call and confess to his attorney um who has no recollection of this or didn't seem to have any recollection of this happening um so i did remember the phone call yes 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 but was like no this is that that no it was or oh he thought it was a joke or something mm-hmm. that's right that's what it was yeah. he thought it was a joke and he's like oh yeah funny one um and you know no one can believe that he is actually capable of this so um i i think it's sort of a mixture of both i think he really i think he did some of the things that he says he does but then i think he really was losing his touch with reality towards the end um and what he perceived happened never really happened um as with the importance of this being written directed by women um i actually didn't know that until i just watched it again recently because i'd never really paid attention um so when i saw i'm like oh wow this is actually directed by women and then watching it again i'm like yeah that makes perfect sense to me um because we you know, like Promising Young Woman, we would not have gotten the story that we did. Um, you know, the the women were not, the, they weren't the focus of this movie. Um, it was him. Um, the eye, you know, your eyes were supposed to be on him, not necessarily the women. And I think if, <clears throat> depending upon the male director, I don't think that would have been the case. Um, because even in the sex scenes, I mean, you did not, there was not a lot of nudity. The nudity was him. Um, you did not see 
a lot of the the female nudity, you know, like, like you know, a, a breast here and there, but that was it. Had a male a man directed it, it would have been completely different. Um, so yeah, I mean, just considering the uh, the story <laughs> and and the type of story that it is, it surprised it. And I don't want to say surprise, but um, that did catch my attention this last time when I watched it that it was uh, written and uh, screenplay written and directed by women. So. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, and Sasha. Um, I love Carla's theory. Mostly because when I watched it again this just a couple of days ago, the apartment scene with the lady who got super cagey and was like, we're not talking about anything. Like, you gotta go. I had the same thought. I was like, wait a minute did he do the murders? So I thought about that for the women because it was like just weird. Um, I think if Patrick killed anybody, it was only the gentleman in the alley. Um, I don't think he killed anybody else. I don't think that he killed the sex workers, mostly because um, I'm pretty sure chainsaws have a kill switch. So if you drop it down a flight of stairs, A, the odds of hitting somebody are slim and B, it would not still be running. So you wouldn't have heard it run as it fell. That made me crazy because chainsaws are my fear for haunted houses. That sound freaks me out. I can't mm -hmm. do it. Me but too. I know that once you let go of the handle, it stops turning. So you just have the, like, the motor sound. I know I'm trying to be logical. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm taking the fun out of it. Um, no, it's but that was my biggest thing with the chainsaw. I'm like, that did not happen. It's not how that works, people. Um, like, I could totally see him slashing the girl in the bed. But the biggest reason I don't think he killed anybody, his apartment is fucking white, people. Everything in his apartment is stark white. Couches, <laughs> carpets, walls. He has that big painting. It's white. You cannot be a splatter killer <laughs> in a white apartment. It doesn't fucking work. I love that. I love that so much. You cannot. Everything is white. Um, oh, come on, Dexter. Dexter could get away with it. Not, Dexter didn't kill in white. He put down tarts and newspaper. He took them off site. The furniture yeah, stuff exactly. Off I mean, he laid out the style section. What else do you need? Do you have a chow chow? No, I'm going to kill you with this shiny axe on newspaper in my white apartment. It's white. The apartment is white. I'm putting a Twitter poll up after this, seeing what people think actually happened in the end. And I now I want to put his apartment was white. He couldn't have killed anybody. I'm, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's a white apartment. You don't. If you poison people, I'm with you. If he was a poison killer, if there was a cleaner method of homicide, you can do it in a white apartment. You cannot be a splatter killer in a white apartment. Oh my splatter. God, I wish you guys could see their faces. So, <laughs> I love your passion about this so much. Me too, man. <laughs> awesome. White. Um, I, the phone call that he makes to his attorney as he's unraveling, because it's all, it is, it's very much a psychotic break. Like he's having hallucinations, you know, the psychotic features of his, um, 
his antisocial and narcissistic and all of that, like the psychotic features are out in full force. They are out to play. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, like, I don't think anybody's going to argue that a certain element of it is straight up hallucination. But that phone call for me was very much a I'm too pretty for prison phone call. Like, I want the credit that I did it, but I can't go to prison because I won't have my beauty routine available to me. So it was the I'm too pretty for jail call is what that was for me. Um, so there's that. And then as far as the women writer, director, all of that, everything that they said, it was the movie was graphic without being gratuitous. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a big exactly. difference between graphic and gratuity. And yep. this was, it stayed on the side of the violence for the violence and not for anything else. The sex scenes were all focused on him. It was all him because he is the American psycho. Mm-hmm. It is his world. All of it is his. So. Yep. <laughs> White. Oh my God. I love that we all have different opinions on this. Honestly, I think it's a lot more interesting that we all have different takes on this. Okay. So I think the ending where he goes out and he shoots and he, the cop car explodes, which wouldn't have happened. And he's trying to feed the kitten and all that. I think that's all a hallucination. I don't think he ever even goes to the office necessarily. I mean, he does make that call though, but I think he doesn't necessarily running around and doing all that stuff and shooting the security guards and shooting the old lady and all that. I think that's all in his head. I do think he kills the, I do think he kills Christy. I do think he kills the other woman. I do think he definitely kills um, the homeless man. Um, I think with Christy, I don't think he necessarily kills her the way you see him kill her. I think that is his way of, I think with Patrick Bateman, he wants to be the best killer in the world, the most skilled killer in the world, the most creative killer in the world. So what's more creative than being able to drop a chainsaw on a person that's running down the stairs, which it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gone in her the way it did uh, at all. Even if the chainsaw didn't have a kill switch, it wouldn't have landed the way it did. Um, I do think, think it's realistic the fact that no one came out because I don't know if you've ever heard there's a story and now I wish I could remember the name of it maybe Sasha can remember for me uh where there was a woman who was brutally murdered Kitty Genovese thank you yes and everybody in this apartment complex heard it they heard what was happening they heard screams nobody helped her nobody helped her and she tried to get help so it's very realistic that somebody would be sadly it's realistic that somebody would be screaming and yelling for help because it's actually happened so um i think if it hadn't actually happened and you hadn't you didn't actually hear stories of that it wouldn't be but i think it is in that case but i don't think that's how she died but i do think he killed her um i don't I'm very mixed on Paul Allen because, and not just because he has a white apartment, (laughs) although that's a very good point, and a shiny, shiny, clean, brand new axe that has nothing on it, Um, because he's a very, very anal person anyway, and I think he just cleans 
all the time. Um, I can just see him like scrubbing the floors and just, you know, with a toothbrush, just getting down, <laughs> doing that. Um, but I don't know about Paul Allen. I still, to this day, I change my mind constantly. Like sometimes I think he did. Other times I think he imagined killing Paul Allen and he wanted to kill Paul Allen. But Paul Allen is like the, um, that's why I love Carla's theory because Paul Allen is like the person that Patrick wants to be. That's who Patrick Bateman wants to be is Paul Allen. And he can never in his mind achieve that. And so I think with him killing Paul Allen, cause I'm right now I'm on the, I'm on the track of thinking he didn't kill Paul Allen, but he killed Paul Allen in his mind because it was his way of killing like his biggest competitor. Um, and I think for him, killing a man, I think is a lot harder for him to do than killing a woman. And I'm not saying that just because of any physical thing. I think it's just a lot harder for him to do. I, I can't quite explain it, but I mean, and a man that's in his station, um, that's runs in his circles that is as rich as him. That's as white as him. But I think Paul Allen is his biggest competitor. I think he, decided he wanted to kill Paul Allen with the business card scene. That was the moment he went, I want to kill Paul Allen because his business card is so much better than mine. And he's always trying to compete with him, but I don't think he ever was necessarily able to do it. I'm, I'm very mixed on it though, because tomorrow I could change my mind, but I think he definitely, definitely killed Christy. I think of all the people that is the one I am most sure of, but I don't think he killed her with a chainsaw. I think most realistically, he probably um, cut her up in that bed or stabbed her or something gruesome like that. Uh, but I don't think he actually did the chainsaw thing, only because I don't think it's realistic the way it was done. Not because of her screaming, but because I don't think he could have done that. But I think he wanted to be able to do that. So he decided to make his killings um, out to be more fantastical than they were because once again he wants to be better and bigger than everybody else so he's making it out to be more fantastical than they actually were when he probably just stabbed her or something like that um and i'm not saying like <laughs> like it's better to kill her with a chainsaw or anything like that but i think in his brain it's more awesome that he would be able to toss a chainsaw down and it would land exactly the way it should land and then the very next scene you see him drawing <laughs> On the restaurant thing of drawing the drawing of the woman with the chainsaw on her back. It's so amazing. And then with uh, having a female director and having two women write it, because Mary Heron directed it, uh, I want to just give credit to the people who directed and wrote this because this took a lot to get this made because Mary Heron directed it. It was taken away from her. And she had written the screenplay with Guinevere Turner, who also wrote and directed a great movie called The Notorious Betty Page. I just want to shout that out. Um, and they had this. It was ripped away from them because nobody knew who Christian Bale was. Uh, nobody wanted to have a woman direct this who, you know, I mean, nobody wants to give something like this to a woman, sadly. And then, of course, as everybody knows, they were going to have Oliver Stone do it and have Leonardo DiCaprio star in it because he wanted to get away from the Titanic stuff. But... The person who had faith in this the whole time, and Carla and I touched on another Christian Bale bonus thing, was Christian Bale. I mean, he still was preparing. Even when this was taken away, Mary Heron had given up on it, and he was still preparing his body. He was still doing that workout regime, still fixing his teeth, all that kind of stuff. And um, I just think it's so important that that ended up happening because 
I think if Oliver Stone had done this, number one, you, you would have seen a lot more graph, graphic killings. The killings would have been a lot more brutal. Um, there would have been so much nudity with the women. It would have been totally from a male gaze. You wouldn't have gotten it the way you did. The women would have been objectified in a totally different way. Um, and it would have been slicker and um, not as, not, not realistic isn't the word I'm looking for, but it would have been more like if you were combining Wall Street and Natural Born Killers and you made that into a movie. And I think that's what he would have done. Um, and I just don't think it would have worked. And the, why it's so important that you had women doing this and women behind the scenes is like we've already said, the male gaze wasn't here. You didn't have that. Like we already talked about, we already, you know, fawned over Christian Bale's ass you would not have had that shower scene. You would not have had that where you see the water streaming down his body. I mean, the camera is basically treating him like a sex object the way that a camera usually treats a woman like a sex object. And the fact that you have him in the tanning bed and you have the camera panning up his body, the fact that you see, um, you know, I, I, I think in the, un, I don't know about it's true that you see full frontal and the unrated. I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but you basically see, practically everything with him you know what his body is like the fact that you see every muscle the fact that all the sex scenes are from his point of view so you're just seeing him as the sex object and while there is some slight nudity with women the women even though they are being murdered and even though he's using them and even though there's even a scene where he's watching a graphic porno um, it still is not the same as when you're watching a movie that's shot from the male gaze. You still don't have that where the women are used as sex objects, which is so amazing to do in a movie like this. It's such an amazing accomplishment. She deserves so much more credit. Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner deserve so much credit for that because you really easily, this easily could have been a snuff piece kind of, for lack of a better word. It could have been torture porn before torture porn came along. And it wasn't that at all. And while the movie has been criticized by some people, most people actually see that and see why it was done that way. And I love Carla that you brought up Christian Bale and his respect for that. And for the fact that he knew he was playing a person who was, uh, an American psycho that he was a he was this guy who epitomized uh, the white fragile male ego and epitomized all that and he knew that and I think that's why he chose to model a lot of this after Tom Cruise and that kind of thing and that 80s thing and I want to say about him again when he played um, Dick Cheney and when he won those awards he would always say he was playing Satan because he recognized who he was playing and I think that's a thing with Christian Bale is he can play these characters that are so dark and twisted and messed up and dude I want to see you do like a comedy or something but anyway <laughs> I just want you to give, give yourself a break um I know he did newsies and all that but <laughs> um I think he he does that because it's he understands what he's doing. He understands that even though as an actor, you have to find some empathy with any character you're playing. He also knows that who he's playing when he's playing a bad guy, like in this and like in vice 
that he has to recognize that and instill that because he knows this person is hurting a lot of people. And especially with this one, this person is hurting a lot of women and this person's a misogynist. And I think you see, and I could be totally wrong. I don't know him personally. I will get to know him soon once he starts being on the show regularly. Um, (laughs) But I think, uh, you have to have some inner respect for women in order to play this character the way he played this character. And I know I was telling our panelists before we started because they were asking about if he has any dark things. And of course, there is that infamous tape of on the Terminator site where he was yelling and screaming at people. Not a very good look. There's infamous run in with his family, with his mother's side of the family. But there's also the fact that he's done some David O. Russell films, and David O. Russell is known for being a jackass and treating women terribly. I do love Silver Linings Playbook, but I know David O. Russell is an ass. And Christian Bale stood up for people on a lot of these sets, uh, for the women in particular. So to me, that is a good thing. So I just want to say that because I really liked that you brought that up, Carla, because I do think it takes a special kind of actor to work in this and feel like my ego is not going to be shattered by the fact that I am going to have a camera panning up and down my body. I am going to be used as a sex object. And this movie is going to be told not from the male gaze, even though it is about a man. And I think it takes a special kind of actor to be like championing, championing that and being like, that's the way this movie should be made. And I just think I just really love Christian F- fucking Bale. So that's, that's <laughs> Maybe just a little bit, you think? Just tiny, tiny tad? I know. Oh my God. I'm like, yeah, I don't to think myself. she's expressed that at all. I don't think so either. She's been super quiet about it. And she it's just very it. distressing. Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't know why she was having... Yeah, I, I don't understand why we're on this episode about a, a, an actor that she's so, you know, lukewarm about. <laughs> okay, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up before Aaron goes off the deep end talking about Christian Bale some more. Um, <laughs> so we're going to wrap up and have everybody say where they can be found, if you want to be found, and what you want to promote. Carla. Thank you. I am Carla Temis. You can find my art at my web- my website, uh, C-A-R-L-A-T-E-M-I-S you can also find my podcast that I do along with Meg um, and that is Bed, Wet, or Behead you can find that wherever you get fine wonderful podcasts and also primarily on Twitter at Bed, Wet, Behead Pod Awesome, thank you and um, Sarah I am uh, Sarah Barnick. That's B-A-R-N-A-I-K. You can find me on Facebook um, at Sarah Barnick. Uh, Actually, it's Sarah Vaccaro Barnick. Or on Twitter and Instagram at NateCamMom. That's N-A-T-E-C-A-M-M-O-M. Thank you. Sasha? Yep. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at VeganGeekChick. Um, And... This is the first one I've been on for a while where I didn't offer up resources, huh? I know. I was like, she could have any resource. If you are love Christian Bale too much, you should. If you like love Aaron. Christian Bale too much, <laughs> you can send me a message on Instagram and we can talk about him. Um, 
if you love his butt entirely too much and want to bang him like a screen door in a hurricane, I'm your girl. We can have that conversation. Yeah, I sometimes want to do that and other times I don't, but <laughs> I just want to sit down and have a 10-hour conversation with him. Anyway. <laughs> if you want to sit down and talk about how you're confused about your feelings for Christian Bale, you should also contact Sasha. Yes. yes Any, anything, really. Go ahead, just send me a message. Slide on in my DMs. No unsolicited dick pics, please. <laughs> This is Erin. Um, if you you can follow me on Twitter at e April Beauty, the E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com/slash It's a Fandom Thing Pod. On Twitter at Fandom Thing Pod, no it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, if you'd like to be a potential interview guest, <clears throat> Christian Bale, you can email the show at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And next week, we are going to be talking about two shows that are very new to me. One of them, I probably honestly will just be moderating, uh, but we're going to be talking about The Witcher and The Expanse. So, <laughs> so yeah, those are two very new shows. I will be binging The Witcher, though, before we talk about that. So that's what we will be discussing. And until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter, and Stop Asian Hate. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly with cover art by Carla Timmies. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Erin Amos. And our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Aaron Marlowe. And remember, keep that fandom spirit alive. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.